Hello and welcome to the SRA Podcast. I'm Faye. And I'm Austin. And that's the show. <laughs> so it's uh, it's Pride Month here in, the, here in the world, and it's been a bit of an eventful Pride so far. That it has. Uh, we've had more cops at Pride than there should have been, and also more Nazis, but, you know, I'm repeating myself. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of hard to tell them apart when they're marching right next to each other, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, you gotta you gotta protect the the free speech of people advocating for genocide. Yeah. yeah. So if if you're not aware, the Detroit Police Department escorted some Nazis into the Motor City Pride Parade, allowed them to tear up and piss on a rainbow flag and an Israeli flag. It, it's interesting to see the right's response to their multiple attempts to have rallies and armed leftist militias showing up and shutting their asses down. It's interesting to see them attempt to do the same and it go kind of completely unsuccessfully. I mean, of course, it's still very scary because there are Nazis and that's... No one wants there to be armed Nazis, but at least pride still happened. Yeah, so a group of 15 Nazis showed up. Two of them had rifles and three of them were open carrying pistols. The police gave them an escort. The police say that the best way to control them and stop them from causing trouble was to escort them into the parade so that they could have their free speech of intimidating queer people, you know. And of course, the police both cited things because obviously some masked up Antifa people had shown up getting on short notice that this was going to happen. About uh, 20 anti-fascist counter-protesters showed up. The police say... Both groups were taunting our officers with racial epithets. <laughs> the counter-protesters were masked up and referring to our African-American officers inappropriately. Uncle Tom isn't a slur when it's used against cops. <laughs> yeah. Calling a black cop a, a fucking traitor? I don't think that that's wrong. I don't think that that's a racial epithet nearly on the degree that a Nazi would use. I mean, they didn't say what those racial epithets were, and I haven't heard it reported elsewhere. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that Antifa was dropping the hard R, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah. It's not really on brand. Yeah, no, that's uh, kind of literally the opposite of what Antifa almost always stands for. And even people on the right will accuse them of over-policing people's, people's language. Of course, when the right says that, they mean, you know, they won't let me say the N-word in front of them without kicking my ass, but... Like, e- even the right knows that <laughs> that the that Antifa is very strict ab- about its discussion of, uh, of race. Yeah, and I think this is really just more evidence of why we cannot let there be cops at Pride. No yep. cops at Pride. Get the fuck out of our parade. Yeah, cops get bricks if they come to Pride, <laughs> as I far mean, as I'm that, concerned. That's literally how it started. Four score and seven years ago, Marsha P. Johnson threw a brick at a cop card and Pride was born. <laughs> pride were declared and that's this is what abraham lincoln was talking about when he said when he gave that speech at the first pride <laughs> <laughs> and this is also a momentous pride in that for the first time the new york police department the nypd chief went up on a podium and formally apologized for the police actions that led to the stonewall riot Aww. Thanks. That's so sweet. You're about 50 years too late. I mean, you could have done it a decade ago, but you were still homophobic back then. You could have done it two decades ago, 
but you were still arresting trans people back then for being trans. Could have done it 30 years ago, but you know, you were still killing gay people or arresting people for cruising. I think the police want to get credit for just not doing the bad thing anymore. Yeah. Maybe you should start doing good things for the community, like arresting Nazis. Yeah. As far as this apology bullshit, like, it's just the same centrist bullshit liberal optics. Like, oh, they said that they're sorry. You know, oh, half of all billionaires should be black women. You know, like, it's the, it's, it's the same just like, look, we said that we're sorry. We're saying all the right things with none of the material support and none of the actual action to to back it up it's all words and no action like it always is exactly i can guarantee you that the instant that the support for lgbt people drops below 45 percent all these cops are going to go right back to being homophobic dickbags the way they always have been the way they still are many of them it's a statistical fact that police tend to be more conservative politically and that also means holding the racist and homophobic and you know bigoted views that conservative people on the whole have trans people experience police violence at a rate higher than the general population sex workers experience police violence at a ridiculous rate many sex workers feel more threatened by the police than they do by their pimps or their johns mm-hmm solidarity with sex workers by the way yeah for sure it's amazing to see all these like supposedly anti-sex trafficking laws come into play when the purpose of them 100 percent is to push sex workers underground if not attempt to eliminate them entirely and leave them even more vulnerable to police violence which is just a cop's favorite thing to do is to commit violence against sex workers Yeah, and laws that aim to punish sex workers or stop sex trafficking or to censor lewd content, often these end up being used as cudgels against the LGBT community specifically because this is a marginalized community and there are large populations of queer people who do sex work because they have no choice or because it's the best option available to them. It simply provides more ways for the state to victimize queer people and people of color and other marginalized groups. Sex work isn't criminalized because sex work is dirty. Sex work is considered dirty and is criminalized because it is a useful tool for oppressing people that society wants to oppress. Yeah, I think that just the state of respect towards the LGBT community can be summarized with regard to centrists and conservatives with this whole stupid youtube response to carlos maza yeah and stephen fucking crowder stephen fucking crowder the mug salesman yeah mr fucking what what is the the thing that he always says change my mind change my mind yeah with it with his douchey stupid change my mind things his cherry-picked bullshit interviews you know and his outright homophobic abuse yeah like and the just the amount and the type of abuse that crowder was throwing at maza i mean calling him a lispy queer calling him a a gay mexican he's fucking cuban you dickbag you illiterate asshole (laughs) yeah you know just throwing this abuse at him and his stupid socialism is for figs 
t-shirt. We know what it says. Just because you put a fig leaf in place of the I doesn't mean that we don't know what word you're trying to say. And also, it's, and it's literal fig leaf over your bigotry. Fuck off with that shit. Yeah, and and it doesn't make you a comedian either. I mean, like Fox literally canceled his show because he wasn't funny. <laughs> like, it's yet another example of just the like childish, lazy kind of nothing jokes that conservatives make with their so-called comedians they clearly struggle to make jokes because like halfway through the joke they just get like too pissed off about what they're talking about to bring it home so they just end up just bullying insults at, at people and stuff it's it's certainly not something that stephen colbert or whoever else isn't isn't above i mean he's certainly engaged with the same thing but you know, it's just, it's really generous to call some of these people comedians. Well, it's because they're not trying to tell jokes. They're just trying to find a way to justify using a slur and to be able to write it off as a joke. That's all it is. It's not comedy. It's bigotry laundry. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that YouTube is so cowardly that they refuse to call it what it is. They refuse to come down on any hard side because they're worried about losing their their right-wing viewers because of quote-unquote censorship when it's direct harassment supported by a system and a populace that's willing to perpetuate violence against those people. Fuck you. You're a fucking coward. And it's it's entirely profit-driven, and YouTube has pride flags all over its corporate social media accounts. Fucking all of them. All of them, except YouTube gaming, for some reason. <laughs> But they have pride flags all over their social media right now. And at the same time, they're defending a bigot's right to throw homophobic slurs to direct personal abuse. Because it's not just him talking shit on his YouTube channel. Stephen Crowder has 4 million YouTube subscribers. And those subscribers act as a hate mob whenever it's beneficial to Crowder. Because they're fucking alt-right online 4chan, 8chan, irony-poisoned fucking piece-of-shit teenagers. <laughs> and if you go up on a stage and you slur someone and you call them a gay Mexican and a lispy queer and all that other bullshit, those fucking kids and adults who might as well be children are going to take that as an invitation to go out and abuse someone with personal slurs. Carlos Maza had his phone number leaked and was bombarded with hundreds of text messages and fake calls. Jesus. You know, while he was at the fucking grocery store. Imagine walking at a grocery store and suddenly you get a hundred death threats on your phone. That's not comedy. That's not free speech. That's fucking harassment. That's abuse. Yeah. And I think that this is an absolutely picture perfect, almost poetic example of just how much anyone who is a capitalist and says that they come down hard against racism just how fucking empty that actually is. They have these these community guidelines that they have up or whatever, but when someone calls them on it and says, hey, you have all this stuff against like abuse and bigotry and stuff like that, is that, do you actually follow that? Because look at this guy and stuff, and they're kind of like, eh, you know, no. Like, we'll acknowledge, yes, he's being abusive, and we don't allow abuse on YouTube, but we're not really like we might demonetize his stuff but oh no the conservatives got pissed at that so we're gonna remonetize some of his stuff once he unlinks his t-shirts and stuff like it's 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 a perfect example of how much capitalism lets the market no matter how unethical how abusive 
and how evil members of the market are, how much it just lets them do whatever the fuck they want as long as it makes them money. Yeah, and I want to take a moment to address the sort of argument that, well, isn't this free speech? Shouldn't people be allowed to say whatever they want? Why are we supporting censorship? Couldn't this censorship be used against the left? Isn't this, isn't this bad? This sort of libertarian free speech argument. Well, we don't have free speech in this country because voices on the left are constantly deplatformed. You will never find a socialist or an anarchist on a major news show being given space to talk about Marxist or anarchist topics or Marxist or anarchist analysis because that sort of thing is simply not allowed by the capitalists who run our system. We have free speech in the formal sense. That is a formal legal right that people have. The government cannot censor you for your speech. But the power of broadcasting speech, of getting your voice out there, that power rests almost entirely in the hands of capitalists. Now, that grasp is a bit more tenuous these days than it was back in, say, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, back when it was radio and broadcast television. Now with platforms like YouTube, like social media, we can go out there and we can talk about these ideas and spread these ideas without having to go through corporate capitalist gatekeepers. But when it comes to reaching a mass audience, the right funds these people. Mm. Steven Crowder is funded by the Koch brothers. He gets a million dollars a year from them to fund his show. It doesn't matter if if his YouTube videos are demonetized, because he only makes $81,000 a year off of that. That's chump change compared to the money that he gets from right-wing think tanks. It's all well and good to be able to say what you want, but as far as actually being able to propagate your ideas, being able to create media, being able to disseminate media, being able to reach a large audience and actually spread these concepts, the right is able to do that at will because they have the economic power to do so. The left does not have substantial economic power, not the radical left. The liberals have some, but the radical left is basically powerless in the media sphere. And so what do you do when you're in a place of power? You fight a guerrilla war and YouTube is a prime place for right-wing radicalization of disaffected white dudes who are downwardly mobile and are upset about women in video games or whatever shit. Yeah. And they're being exposed to this anti-feminist, this pro-racist content, and being exposed to these right-wing ideas, and they're being radicalized into Nazism. And that's happening because the right has institutional support. Because we don't have institutional support, the only tool that we have to shut down that ideology as a political praxis of actually advancing left-wing ideas, the only option we have is deplatforming because no one is going to give us a platform. You know, if we can't have a, a, a substantive platform to spread our views, at the very least we can deny the right the ability to do so. And by pressuring companies like YouTube to put more restrictions on the absolute fucking hate speech on their website, mm-hmm. we can at least make some progress in breaking up that media monopoly, at least weakening the right-wing voices and possibly opening up more speech for left-wing people and for more women and people of color and more queer people to be able to disseminate media without receiving personal harassment from these right-wing hate mobs inspired by these right-wing personalities. Yeah, and let's 
Let's not forget the free speech that advocates genocide against people who are already disenfranchised in society. There's nothing benign about that. You can say, eat the rich. You can say, all cops are bastards. You can say, throw bricks at cops, because all of those people have institutional power to support what they do. Whereas the LGBTQ community, people of color, women now, especially in the South, they don't have the institutional power to defend themselves. If someone wants to, by inciting hate speech against someone else, they can bring institutional power to bear to, to silence those people and silence those voices. There's nothing benign. Like, it matters what someone is saying with their free speech and who is saying it. Yes. You know, we can't treat politics like this, you know, like it's a debate club. This isn't a debate club. People's lives are at stake. People's livelihoods are at stake. We need to fight for a more just society. We need to fight for a society that tackles climate change. We need to fight for these things. And sometimes that means voting. And sometimes that means deplatforming people. And sometimes it means punching Richard fucking Spencer. Yeah. And it certainly means ignoring the bullshit lip service that capitalists feed us when they say that they're allies, when they say that they're on our sides, when they paint rainbow fucking flags all over every fucking thing that they have. You can see exactly in this case how that actually plays out when push comes to shove they are nowhere to be seen and i think the right playing this game of okay well you show up armed to our rallies we'll show up armed to your rallies i just want to say that we are absolutely in support of armed leftists who go to rallies and who protect the marginalized against these fucking psychopaths we are 100 percent in support of antifa and the black panthers and whoever else shows up armed to defend people when the cops and the capitalists are too fucking cowardly to protect the community. Absolutely. And I think we should talk a bit about what SRA's political goal is and what we're organizing around and what we think is important. On the Final Straw podcast, they had a couple of members of a left-wing militia, formerly Redneck Revolt, but apparently these days their militia operates on its own. And they had some words for the SRA, and I feel like those words were in good faith, but I think there was partially a misunderstanding of what the SRA does and what it's here for, and partially maybe a bit of purism of you need to be doing the most radical thing or else you aren't really doing leftism. Right. But I think it's worth sort of clearing up why the SRA promotes a left-wing gun culture. So left-wing militias, insofar as they are a force that can provide security at prides or at other left-wing or culturally left-wing events, if they are able to stand up and do something, if America should become a fascist country or if there's a civil war or some shit, militias are a very valuable thing. I think They're the, Yes, militias are the front line as far as I'm concerned against fascist takeover. Yeah, so I certainly don't want to denigrate that because I think it's really important. But it's not the only thing that the left does with firearms. Another thing that those militiamen brought up was that they were present at Charlottesville, which, first off, respect. But second, they said that, in hindsight, they feel that they really shouldn't have been there. Because if shit had gone down, if there was a firefight, there was the general perception that the Redneck Revolt was not sufficiently trained to deal with that situation. And they were not carrying the correct arms. People were walking around with AR-15s. You don't want to fire two, two, three in a crowd. It's going to go through people. It's going to, you know, it's going to overpenetrate. It's going to cause civilian casualties. It's not the correct tool for the job if you're looking to respond to an active shooter or engage in a firefight at an event like that. And 
I think there's a very important distinction that needs to be made, and I don't think has been made. There needs to be a very important distinction drawn between event security and protesting with weapons, because those are two different things. And first off, the SRA doesn't do either of those. We'll talk about what the SRA does later, but providing security for an event is very different from showing up to an event and marching with guns. When you show up and you march with guns, you're using your firearm as a political prop. You're using it to make a statement to say, hey, you people think that you're so tough. You think that you're the only people who know how to use guns. Well, we've got guns too. We know how to use them. It's a political statement. Which we support. Absolutely. I mean, be we, responsible about it. Don't be an idiot. But Right. But we, we absolutely support dispelling the idea that leftists are a bunch of unarmed intellectuals who think that a vegan diet will stop bullets or whatever the whatever the fuck the straw man is right now and on the other hand providing security at an event is a very different thing if you're providing security you don't want to be visible if you're providing security at a protest where you're planning to be in a position to respond to an active shooter or some other event like that you don't want to be walking around in a plate carrier with an AR-15 because you're an obvious target and you're going to get shot right away. And an AR-15 is not a weapon that you want to be popping off in a crowd. If you want to provide security at an event, then you want to be carrying a concealed pistol, dressed innocuously. You want to be having communications with other people if you're going to organize it. If you're going to do it in an organized fashion, you want to have secure communication with other people in that area you're going to want observers you're going to want people it's an entirely different operation versus showing up with a gun as a protest prop and both of those things are valid providing security at an event like that especially as things heat up the way they're starting to coming into the 2020 election having security like that is vital but at the same time that doesn't validate the practice of showing up armed as a statement because I think that's a very valuable as well. I think it emboldens people. I think it makes the anti-fascists at these events feel safer, knowing that there are armed people around who are visibly armed. I think that a lot of people feel that's very empowering and reassuring. But at the same time, those the people doing that are not the people who should be your front line of event security. Right. That's certainly true. Now, the SRA doesn't do either of those things. We're not a militia. We're not a security force. We don't do open carry protests. So what does the SRA do? We are an education and training organization. We are building a left-wing gun culture, trying to build up the number of people on the left who own firearms, who know how to use firearms, who have concealed carry permits, who have this knowledge, who are a part of a gun culture that they can transmit that information on to others. And if those people then choose to join a militia, or do event security, or go out and protest with their gun, A, they will have a gun, and B, they'll know how not to blow their fucking hand off or something. You know, it's important to build up this knowledge and build up this skill base on the left, because the two militia people in that podcast, again, mad respect for them, but one of them is a military veteran, and the other grew up in a household full of guns with multiple NRA members adjacent to them. Mm Mm-hmm those people benefited from a institutional firearms training from the state and b the right-wing gun culture that permeates rural american life yeah not everyone has that luxury and the sra exists to provide a safe place where someone can become a skilled responsible gun owner who can then if they choose to provide security as a private citizen who 
are renewed with political power that was deprived from them because of the right-wing slant of almost all gun culture in this country. We're out here in LA. We get people coming to our events sometimes who have never seen a gun before because there is no real gun culture in LA except in some of the most oppressed communities, in which case it's more closely associated with gangs. And you know, obviously that gun culture is not great in terms of safety. So a lot of the times when people come to an event in LA for the Socialist Rifle Association, it's the first time they've ever seen or held a gun in person, except for seeing it on like a cop's belt. A lot of the time, it's the first time they've ever had the opportunity to shoot. These are people who've never even heard of the four basic rules of gun safety. And we're able to give them that information and give them that training where if they're black or latino or queer and they don't feel comfortable going to a gun store where they're going to get fucking bigoted abuse from the proprietors which several of the local ranges and gun stores do they have an option to come to us and receive that information from people who are explicitly anti-fascist anti-racist anti-bigotry we're here to provide a left-wing gun culture that's not tainted with those sorts of vile attitudes and i think people underestimate how important that is if this was just a couple of people who already knew about guns going out in the woods and shooting, then that would be one thing. But our goal is to build up the left, to build up a left-wing gun culture so that we have more people who have that option of joining a militia or who have that option of carrying a gun at a protest or whatever praxis you think is appropriate so that we have that pool of resources available to us. It's all well and good to have a militia, but you need a certain level of skill to even really start in that you're not going to get some big city DSA person who's never held a gun before. They're not going to go out and join a militia out of the blue because they, because they just, Oh, I I feel in that mood. And I saw a picture of an IRA person. Oh man, I feel like joining a militia now that doesn't happen. Right. You have to provide an approachable environment for people to become comfortable, to become integrated with the culture, to learn safety, all, all of those things. Otherwise you run into situations where guns are put in hands that don't know how to use them and things become very dangerous very quickly. I think that that's just as valuable a purpose and I think that that's just as valuable a position as going armed to protests either as security or in demonstration because it enables more people to do that. It boosts our numbers in ways that the first two can't, because that's not always approachable. And I think it's also worth bringing up why we've chosen to organize as a nonprofit with a legal entity. There are pros and cons to having a official legal entity for the organization. And we've chosen to take the pros of that and run with them as far as we can. One of our main programs, which has unfortunately been delayed by paperwork and insurance issues, but we are getting off the ground pretty well now, is our instructor sponsorship program. So Redneck Revolt has had certified instructors in various chapters who can provide training to Redneck Revolt members or to members of the community who want to learn guns, and that's great. But there are only so many existing leftist firearm instructors And so one of the goals of the SRA is to create a network of left-wing firearm instructors by sponsoring people to get training. You know, we have a member here in LA who only started shooting in the last year or so, but has been working on it every week, going to the range every week with their pistol, practicing, becoming proficient, becoming honestly, frighteningly good with a handgun. Yeah, that 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 dude's a surgeon. (laughs) 
and he's now looking at becoming an instructor. This is a person who had very little experience with firearms before, and now, probably uh, within the next uh, six months, that person is going to be a certified firearms instructor with the capability to teach people the classes they need in order to get their concealed carry permits. Although, that's tough enough in LA County, but for the people in San Bernardino or Orange County, we'll have the ability to actually get people this training Whereas previously, this person might not have ever picked up a gun before. We're sponsoring people to become firearms instructors. We're building essentially gun clubs in all these states where people can go to get that training, to have a centralized place where people can organize and organize events beyond just going out and shooting our mutual aid and disaster relief efforts. People have done marches at Pride or tabled at various events and have spread this idea of being armed leftists. And that's not something that would happen if it was just done piecemeal through decentralized networks. I really respect Redneck Revolt, despite their recent troubles, but acting as a decentralized network with no legal basis as an entity puts restrictions on what you can do. Redneck Revolt would probably struggle to build a network of instructors the way we're trying to do uh, with the way that they were set up. So by operating as a nonprofit, by operating in this explicitly legal space. We are boxing ourselves into this space, but doing so gives us a lot of protection and ability to accumulate power, to accumulate capital, to accomplish these sorts of things that otherwise wouldn't be possible. And if you don't like what we're doing with it, uh, join the organization and vote me out in October. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're if you're already skilled, you know, join a militia. Like, do your thing, you know? If, if you've got the skill set, then do what you think is right. If you don't, feel free to come and learn with us. Yeah, I don't think that, and this will probably sound strange considering that I'm investing all my time and organizing efforts in the SRA. I don't think that the SRA is the most important project on the left. I think it's important that we have a gun culture, that we have a backstop, that we have this tool in our political toolbox. I think that's important, but... I think it's less important than things like organizing tenants unions, organizing the labor movement, building unions and co-ops. Absolutely. You know, there are other things that are more important. We're building the SRA as a piece of a larger puzzle. We need to build left-wing organizations and institutions to take people out of piecemeal activism and build towards a unified or semi-unified movement. And we start doing that by supporting various types of organizing and organizing gun clubs and disseminating left-wing gun culture is an important type of organizing, not the most important, but it's something that I personally have the knowledge and the skills and the interest in doing. So that's what I choose to organize around. And if you think that there are more useful things that you can do with your time and your organizing efforts, if you would rather be in a militia, if you would rather organize tenants unions, if you would rather organize this or that, go and do that. If you want to learn how to shoot as part of your development as a leftist, the SRA is here for you. Yeah. Speaking of community organizing, a uh, shout out to the Vox writers for striking and attempting to unionize right now. Don't cross the picket line and give their website views. Yeah, don't, don't go to Vox.com. Okay, so I'm curious about overpenetration. Do you feel like there is a responsible caliber that someone should get used to and that they shouldn't necessarily go over? Like, is there like an upper limit? So overpenetration is a complicated subject because different 
types of bullets fired out of different types of guns behave different ways when they hit different things. It's sort of a big subject, but in a lot of ways, 223 is one of the better rounds as far as overpenetration is concerned. So normally we talk about overpenetration in the context of home defense. If you live in an apartment and a bad guy breaks in and you shoot them to defend yourself, if you miss, you don't want that bullet to go into the next apartment and kill your neighbor or to go through and break your neighbor's shit and they sue you. Right. And you also don't want to shoot the bad guy and that bullet then pass through them and hit someone else, which would be the concern at a, if there was an active sh- shooter situation at a rally. In the context of home defense, there usually won't be someone standing directly behind the person that you're shooting at. Um, the concern is over-penetration through walls. And in that case, 223 is actually pretty good because 223 is a very lightweight bullet traveling at a very high velocity. And when it hits a solid object, it tends to spin and tumble and shatter into pieces. So a 223 will go through one sheet of, you know, through one standard wall, two sheets of drywall. It'll pass through that, but when it comes out the other side, it will be in several pieces at a much lower speed and is much less likely to cause a serious injury. In comparison, something like a shotgun firing very large, heavy, mostly spherical projectiles at a low speed, if you miss, those rounds are going to go through a sheet of drywall, and they're not going to tumble because they're round and it doesn't matter if they're tumbling or not, and they're not going to shatter, they're just going to keep going. Shotguns for home defense have some advantages, but overpenetration is a real issue because if you shoot a shotgun at, you know, a shotgun blast of buckshot can easily penetrate seven, eight, nine layers of drywall, and a shotgun slug could go through, you know, have shotgun slugs have been tested going through a dozen or more. And likewise, handguns, while not as prone to overpenetration as a shotgun, handguns, again, it's a large, heavy, slow projectile. It retains its momentum. You know, it might tumble, but it's not going to shatter. You're still going to have a large piece of copper and lead flying through the air that's going to hit someone and kill them. So when it comes to penetration through walls, 223 is actually one of the better ones because it does fragment and it does tend to fragment and not cause serious injuries on the other side of a wall. However, firing at an unarmored target, it's a bit more likely, especially if it isn't a center of mass shot, it's a bit more likely to pass through a body without shattering and still have the potential to cause damage on the other side. So that's a bit more of a concern. So it's a complicated subject and it really depends. For home defense, 223 out of an AR-15 is honestly a really great option. Pistols and shotguns are viable, but maybe not ideal depending on the situation. Fair enough. Any other gun questions? What if you had to get through Kevlar? <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. As, I don't know. No, we can response. talk about that. All as, right, far all right, as, all right. as far as armor penetration, the National Institute of Justice delineates several different levels of body armor, and those levels are defined by the caliber of firearm that they will stop. So there was originally an NIJ level one body armor, but that's obsolete, deprecated. So the lowest rated levels of armor available today are 2A and 2. 2A is the lower level of armor. And those are rated to stop a 9mm handgun. 2A is rated for a slightly weaker 9mm, whereas straight level 2 is rated for 
slightly hotter loads, maybe plus P rounds, but basically NIJ level 2 armor will stop a 9mm. And that's sort of the common, you know, underclothing Kevlar armor that a lot of people think about when they think of a Kevlar vest. That sort of armor is intended to stop a 9mm and nothing more. In comparison, NIJ level 3A is also rated to stop rounds up to 44 Magnum or shotgun buckshot. NIG level 3A armor is also commonly made out of Kevlar, but is much bulkier. That's typically what you see police wearing, you know, those bulky vests with, you know, it looks like they're wearing padded shoulders. It's not just to make them feel like big boys. It's, it is also for uh, protection from firearms. <laughs> NIG level 3A is generally understood to stop almost any sort of handgun threat. However, Kevlar cannot stop a rifle round. Once you get above 2,000 feet per second velocity, which is faster than pretty much every pistol can get, once you get above that velocity, the projectiles just tear through Kevlar and it can't do anything to stop them. So that's when you get NIJ level 3, which is rated to withstand 223 or 556 millimeter, as well as 762 millimeter NATO or 308. Basically, NIJ level three is anti-rifle armor. That's what that's what SWAT teams use in the military and stuff like that. Right. So SWAT teams in the military typically wear um, ceramic plates, which will typically stop one or two rounds and then shatter, and then they'll they're no longer effective at stopping bullets after that. But you take one or two rounds to the chest if you're in a SWAT team or a infantry squadron your comrades are going to drag you out of there and get you medical assistance asap hopefully Uh, there is also steel armor available which is nij level 3 rated but steel armor is not ideal it's much much heavier than ceramic a lot of people buy it especially like from ar500.com and similar websites steel armor works but for the amount of weight, you're not going to be able to move in steel armor. You're not going to be able to do, if you're in a militia and you're planning on being out in the woods with a pack full of gear and a rifle, and you're going to be humping that thing around and you know exerting a lot of effort, you don't want to be wearing a 20-pound steel plate front and back. You're going to get fucking exhausted, and you're going to wind yourself, and you're not going to be effective if there's actually a fight. So steel armor is, I mean... I'm not going to call you an idiot if you buy it, but, I mean, maybe. Uh, Finally, there's NIJ Level 4 armor, which is intended to stop armor-piercing rounds. It's rated to stop 30-06 M2 armor-piercing ammunition, which is about typical of armor-piercing rounds, and that's pretty hard for civilians to get. You can find it. Sometimes stuff falls off the back of a truck in Russia and finds its way to the U.S., but it's, it's pretty expensive. It's not something you'll commonly find. And that is usually ceramic armor because uh, steel armor strong enough to withstand an armor-piercing round. That's not armor anymore. That's just a mobile pillbox. As far as what's economical and effective for most kinds of things, what would you recommend if someone was concerned about, about, gun, about gun violence? If you're just a ordinary civilian, maybe you're you're not in a militia, you're not out open carrying or anything like that. Maybe you're an organizer and you're worried that some proud boy might walk up with a pistol and take a shot at you. If that's what you're worried about, then I'd recommend a level two vest. There are slim vests available that can be worn under clothing. You should hit up Robert Evans, who has 
some opinions on particular brands, but I'm not familiar with too many of them myself. But there are sort of slim level 2 or level 3A vests that you can get that will stop pretty much any handgun caliber round. Anything that someone's going to conceal, you know, unless they've got an AR pistol under their trench coat. What kind of monetary investment are we talking with those? Minimum around $200. You could spend up to four or 500 especially if you're in an odd size and you're looking for the really nice stuff but generally it's about it's about two or three to get entry-level worthwhile body armor you might be able to get some steel armor and a plate carrier for cheaper than that but whew, i don't know if it's worth it <laughs> yeah so let's say that you find yourself at one of these rallies and you and your comrades are armed and the other side is is also armed with the things that they typically have at rallies what would you recommend in that instance class three ceramic plates gotcha if you want uh particular information on brands of armor and you know plate carriers then i'd recommend hitting up the socialist ra subreddit or facebook page or you could hit up the slack if you're a member i'm not an expert on body armor i'm i'm better at putting holes in things than defending myself from them but Hmm. definitely if you're interested in that sort of thing we have a lot of members who are knowledgeable in that yeah hit us up for any any kind of information you need because sometimes getting hit by something cannot be avoided and absolutely fuck nazis don't let their bullets kill you (laughs) Also, all cops are bastards. No <laughs> cops at Pride. No cops at Pride. Only bricks. Armed trans women disarm cops. <laughs> I think we I think we covered it all. All right. Well, after the break, we've got an interview with Leslie Fish. So let's go ahead and play one of her songs, and uh, we'll hit her up after that. Peace, guys. Just a little general hospital in a little factory town. Or put me in charge for mainly keeping prices down. I hadn't touched a patient since 1982. But the day of the explosion, I remembered what to do. At 11 in the morning, we all heard the factory blow. The blast took out the windows and the shrapnel fell like snow. We could get no help from out of town for half a day or more. We had near a thousand casualties. And beds for 94. Can you keep your head, your backbone, or your heart? We all found out the answers on the day it fell apart. You can join the chorus if you want. It was worse than combat medicine. Supplies were draining fast. Bandages ran out, and antiseptics wouldn't last. I took all the able bodied I could catch inside the door. And made them help the doctors or go scrounge supplies and more. I invented laws to tell them, saying it's such emergency. Forget your usual job and boss, your orders come from me. I sent the cops to commandeer anything in reach food or disinfectant, cloth or alcohol or bleach. And then you keep your head, your backbone, or your heart. We all found out the answers on the day it fell apart. Maintain supplies. The garbage man removed the ones who died before our eyes. The clerks burned all our papers to boil water on the fire. Our sterilizing instruments as the body count went higher. A local health food herbalist brought everything he had. The painkillers were useful and the poultices weren't bad. A smack and cocaine pusher handed us his whole supply. The quality was lousy, but a few more didn't die. And can you keep your head, your back 
sad-eyed fireman gave the stroke to those we couldn't save. Then sometime in the chaos, a director wandered in to tell us we were breaking rules, what trouble we'd be in. <laughs> but if we'd swear the factory was not the fire's cause, and the harm was accidental, he'd forget the broken laws. The staff sneaked up and grabbed him and tied him to a door. And he gave them blood transfusions till they hadn't any more. <laughs> ah, you're a typo negative. Wonderful. <laughs> and can you keep your head, your backbone, or your heart? We all found out this on the day it fell apart. When that day was over and we'd saved all that we could, we saw that law and politics would hang us where we stood. We saved 800 lives but shattered all authority. I told them, people, save yourselves, put all the blame on me. I took my books and instruments and a few supplies beside. Packed my car and ran away to open countryside. So now I live an outlaw, condemned by righteous men. But for all the lives I saved that day, I do it all again. And can you keep your head, your backbone, or your heart? We all found out the answer on the day it fell apart. Oh, can you keep your head, your backbone, or your heart? You'll all find out the answer on the day it falls apart. On the day that everything falls apart. Welcome back, folks. Today, we have an interview with anarchist and folk musician Leslie Fish. And don't forget Pagan. Oh, I didn't know that, actually. Oh, yeah. I've uh, been a uh, Neil Pagan since I, was in, uh, uh, since I was in high school. That's great. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, you know, how you sort of came to be where you are uh, in the world? Okay. I was born and raised in a uh, boring, desperately boring, respectable New Jersey suburb, uh, South Orange, a suburb of Newark, uh, about which I could say much. And I was born desperately boring, respectable parents and uh, squatted for a desperately boring, respectable future. And I swore I would get away and live an adventurous life or die trying. So I escaped to college, took up, uh, which is about when the uh, when the anti-war movement was uh, really strong and I got involved in that I got involved in the civil rights movement and inevitably women's lib gay lib and finally the radical labor movement and by the time I got out of college I also knew that I was going to be a folk singer all my life a folk singer and a writer and I knew that, that was not a career which paid very well so I expected I was always going to be on the poorer side and therefore it was perfectly natural I should wind up with the Wobblies in fact, as I recall, it was during one of the big marches on Washington uh, against the war when I and my contingent from the University of Michigan, mar now we came marching by a, a bench in the park where there was this bunch of little old men in suits staring at the crowd and frowning and grumbling. And I thought, oh, here are the Wallaceites, and until I got close enough to hear what they were saying which was, no, no, nobody armed, not a sign of any kind of weapon. How are they going to fight off the cops? And this one little old man, whom I later learned was Joe Vlad, who was an incredible character himself, stood up on the park bench, waved his cane, and said, Listen, when the cops come and come to buy you, you grab them, you grab their guns, and you shoot them with their own guns. 
I thought, wow, this is proof you could live to get old without selling out. Who are these guys? So that's, and I asked them and they told me. And so later on, I went to looking for the Wobblies and I joined. When I left college and moved to Chicago looking for work, that was where the Wobbly headquarters were. So I joined and I became an editor on the uh, Wobbly newspaper where I stayed for all the years that I lived in Chicago. And I didn't leave Chicago until... Well, by, by then I'd also gotten into folk... I'd always been a folk singer, now I got into folk music because I'd always been a science fiction fan too and the two blend together naturally. Can you explain for uh, listeners who might not know what folk is? <laughs> okay. Folk music is the spontaneously generated folk music of a culture known as science fiction fandom. It's a genuine folk music, just has science fiction and fantasy themes. It's, it probably starts with a lot of the poems that appear in uh, all of the science fiction novels of Gordon Dixon, definitely, and Paul Anderson. In fact, when the earliest folk songs were Paul Anderson and Gordy Dixon uh, poems set to music, folk tunes. At first appeared at room parties at science fiction conventions and grew from there. I'd gotten into a few of those parties and become fairly well-known as a folk singer. And I knew that things had changed once when I was invited early to a room party. And when I walked in the door, I said they were setting up professional recording equipment. At that point, I knew, okay, this is taking off. And it did. Soon after that, the first folk music publishers showed up, including one called Off Centaur Publications, which eventually came looking for me. I was visited by, uh, oh, I think it's Terry Lee herself, who asked me, why don't you move out here to out, out to California where you can work for us and you can come to come at our place? My response was, give me time to pack. <laughs> so I moved out to California, moved in with uh, the off Centaur crowd, which grew and went, um, went took me around to science fiction conventions over California and further out. Well, I would sing, and um, by now there were folk music tracks uh, at the uh, science fiction conventions, and I was usually in them. There was there were uh, assorted concerts, and then at night there were all-night singing parties. And I, I became a real veteran of the singing parties, and they were usually recorded. And the recordings wound up being uh, published and sold, and that's where I made my living for a good long while, about 10 years in California. Until, well, frankly, it was rising costs and bad laws in California made me decide to leave. Also made Austin to our publications decide to leave. Besides, they had internal quarrels that uh, broke apart the company. And so I signed on with a different company and moved to Arizona. The prices are lower and the laws are more sensible. And here I've been ever since. Awesome. So can you tell us a bit more about your time in, in the IWW? And particularly, it said on Wikipedia that you were in charge of the Wobbly House Band for a time. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I was working with the Wobblies in Chicago and had a uh, not very well-paying job as an editor on the paper. There were a couple of other fans who'd likewise come out here from, or come out there from the University of Michigan. Kathy Taylor and uh, Mary Froman and a local guy named Robin Oya. And we all got together and became the Wobbly House Band. It was called the Dehorn Crew. And we went around to not just science fiction parties, but uh, any, any kind of radical gathering where they wanted music. We sang. 
And eventually we got the idea of, hey, let's put together an album. And we did. It was uh, called Folk Songs for Folk Who Ain't Even Been Yet. It was put together by a local um, radical sympathetic science fiction fan. And I believe we published all of 500 copies. And those are <laughs> classic rarities now. But eventually the uh, album was recopied onto CD, but that's that was later. And after that, we seen that we were having some success, at least getting famous in the Chicago area. We put together another album, which was Solar Sailors. By then I was in touch with Pop Centaur Publications, and they uh, agreed to do the publishing and the distribution and the marketing. So I already had that set up for me when I got out to California. But uh, the various members of the band had other interests, romantic as well as business, <laughs> did not want to rely on the band as their source of income because it wasn't much. And so the band broke up, although we regathered a few times afterwards to, to play and sing and to certainly party. But, let's see, Mary Froman went back to Michigan, Kathy Taylor stayed in Chicago, Robin Oya married and went to Minnesota, I think, and I went out to California on my lonesome to become a uh, professional folk singer with uh, Off Centaur. But um, apparently we uh, left a lasting legacy. Some of, my, some of our songs, some of my songs, I believe are still in the, uh, the Wobbly's Little Red Songbook, which gets reissued at odd intervals every few years. And I think they still publish my song, We're Still Here, which is a song about the Wobblies. We're still here, we're still here, 110 hard years and more, and we're still here. Of course, that next to last line changes every year. Oh, for sure. So you describe yourself as an anarchist. Could you speak more about your politics? Okay. Well, as I say, my, I started off with a desperately dull, boring, respectful family, middle-class family, who, of course, voted Democrat. And while I was in the in, you know, college... I got involved with, the, say, the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and so on and so on. And being a college student, of course, at the University of Michigan, which was very proud of having really good scholars, I would do research on these various causes and, uh, and their histories and their pasts and so on. And the more I saw, the more I read, the more I saw that typical Democrat liberal liberalism had some rather serious weaknesses, such as... Uh, Frankly, a basic class arrogance, the assumption that we are the educated people, therefore we should rule. And um, those working stiffs, they're all very well when they, when they vote the way we want to, but other than that, don't pay attention to them. It was the labor unions, which had given the Democrat Party so much support in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which was now being marginalized. And I did not care for that. I saw for myself that uh, power corrupts more than just the politics, it corrupts the, the intellect. And the more I looked, the more I saw that getting the government involved in anything screws it up. The best thing a government can do is back off and do as little as possible, which also put me in touch with the early libertarians. It was interesting to see how, well, we've seen how the political left and right, the authoritarian left and right, communism and fascism, uh, Nazism, curl around and meet each other in a circle. Well, there's another division. There's the I would call it the anti-authoritarian political scale, where you get the libertarians on the right, the anarchists on the left, and they come around and meet in the middle. So the political spectrum is not a straight line, it's a figure eight, as in eight ball, which we're behind. 
I remember having the first argument I had with a serious libertarian theorist. I came to the conclusion and told him, libertarianism uh, and free enterprise implies anarchism. And he kind of blushed and said, I wouldn't go that far. To which I replied, I would, I would. It's definitely frustrating talking with right libertarians and you, you know, you can get them to agree on being opposed to the state, but then you say, hey, maybe you know, maybe there shouldn't be this private control of capital for profit. And then suddenly, oh, well, suddenly they want nothing to do with you. <laughs> okay, the fun, the fun part uh, that I saw is the ones who were serious about doing their research were the ones who said that in an open and free society, okay, you can make your company a uh, a partnership or a co-op, and let's, let, let's turn them all loose and see how which ones do better. And that was that was a workable agreement. One thing, other thing I saw while dealing with the Franks of the bloody communists in the uh, in the peace movement and elsewhere, was their assumption that all private property is evil. Excuse me, the privatest of private property is your own body. If you don't own that, what the hell do you own? So uh, the idea of private ownership is not a problem. It's the management, you know, who controls, who rules. I mean, they get like the uh, classic case just last year, of little kids who put a, um, a lemonade stand on their front lawn. And the local cops got after them because the lemonade they were selling wasn't government inspected or something, or government licensed, and they had no business license. Uh-huh, right. People will always find ways, always have found ways to make make a living, and trying to have, it, have this totally ruled by the government is just a recipe for disaster. Individual ownership or group ownership is not the problem. There has never been a human society that did not have both public and private, both group and individual property. I mean, if you look back to caveman days, the individual caveman owned his own spear and uh, bow and arrows and, and the hides of the animals that he hunted. But the whole tribe owned the hunting territory. So there never has been a uh, real conflict in that department. It's always been a question of who controls that's one of my arguments with what what is commonly called socialism. Although, to be honest, I think socialism is a sloppy term, which is, uh, covers entirely too many definitions. It's, it can cover anything from a small co-op business up to a whole country with a government-owned and controlled economy, which is a disaster. And in between, it can cover anything from a co-op club to a farmer's grain to a, a local volunteer fire department. Socialism is a sloppy term, and we ought to find a better one. For that matter, I, can, I go around telling my libertarian conservative friends, stop calling yourselves conservatives, because for the most part, you're not. You're libertarians, and I wish you would recognize that fact and vote accordingly. So, it's a, it's a war of false labels. Definitely. Agreeing on terminology is very important for any sort of conversation in a political sense. Yeah. Ayn Rand had... Uh, <laughs> As a very questionable philosopher, there are holes in her theory I could drive a truck through. But one thing she was good about is saying, first, define your terms. What is socialism? What is capitalism? What is anarchism? Well, the anarchists have the easiest answer. No government. I think the anarchists these days would phrase it as no unjust hierarchies. Uh, that's it. That's getting into the, fun, into the funny definitions again. Nope. The word, the word comes from the Greek, an, archos, without, government. 
does not mean without without order. It just means without laws. Thank you. So, as I said, we've got the we've got the easiest answer, the easiest definition, and I think we we should stick with it. And uh, cabling and uh, and playing with it weakens and divides the definition. For sure. Can you talk some more about your interaction with the civil rights movement, gay lib, women's lib? I'd always been a rebellious kid. I mean, whenever the, the boys said, no, you can't be in our baseball team because you're a girl. I'd run out and, and beat up the first boy who said it. I am not a weakling. The very idea that female or feminine automatically means weakling, decorated weakling, made my blood boil. So it was natural when I was marching around with peace movement that when the uh, ticket captains would say things like, all you girls get to the back, I would bristle and say, oh, yeah. For one thing, when I was a little kid, whatever my father's faults, I will pray forever to keep his soul out of hell because of one thing he did for me. I mean, besides give me a decent upbringing, with enough food, enough medicine, and decent education, one thing he did for me was take me aside one day and show me how to make a proper fist, how to throw a proper punch, how to do the flying mare, which is a, an old wrestling uh, an old wrestling hip throw. And he, just not, he was not upset if I ever got into fights so long as I made a good account of myself. I didn't even have to win. I just had to fight well. For that, I shall honor him, honor his spirit eternally. Because he did, he did not expect me to, me to be a decorated weakling. And I've always seen the very theory that femininity means being a decorated weakling. Where I found that crap being promulgated, I stomp on it, including the, a lot of the modern university feminists you find running around these days. When, when it's just, they're so delicate and sensitive that anything traumatizes and triggers them. Boo hoo hoo. Boo hoo. <clears throat> you, you want to see offense? I'll give you my fist. Yeah. So, what's your opinion on gun ownership? Because, as I understand, you are fairly pro gun. Oh, yeah. I mean, way back in the 60s, I saw a pamphlet put out by a couple of, by a bunch of hippies about with photographs of long-haired, uh, long-haired, paisley-wearing you know, hippies holding rifles. said clearly that if you have a commune or any location you can expect to be attacked, you'd better learn how to fight back. And the best way to fight back is with a firearm. I know it's a basic primer on how guns work, what they are, how to use them, proper safety rules, you know, Basics that you'd get from the NRA, <coughs> starting with the you know, basic safety rules, you know, the famous four, the famous four basic: never point a gun at anything you don't intend to destroy. Keep your finger off the trigger until you're ready to shoot. Always be sure of your backstop. Always assume that all guns are always loaded. Yeah, made sense. Oh, my first gun it was a classic single-shot 22 rifle back in Michigan. It seemed that the uh, month before, when I was alone in the, uh, it was during summer, and we did not have air conditioning, it was really hot. And I was upstairs in the apartment, my buddies had gone out somewhere else, and I didn't have much else to do, so but the TV didn't work. So I pulled my clothes off and went to the closet and pulled out my latest acquisition, which was a um, an antique sword, beautiful thing, I, got, I bought it more for decoration than for anything <laughs> any, anything useful, though it was a good, solid sword. And I was polishing it when I heard a, a rattling at the window uh, in the next room. And the next room was divided from uh, the living room by a curtain. 
And I knew that window was two stories up, and there was no reason for that window to be rattling. So I tiptoed the curtain and peeked through, and I saw, yeah, a thug pushing the window up and trying to crawl in through the, through the space. So I thrust the curtain aside and charged him, waving the sword and yelling, Frida! And he saw this naked woman charging at him, waving a sword, and decided this was not part of his job description. And he went back out the window much quicker than he'd come in. And he uh, grabbed for the uh, drain pipe, and it came loose and dropped him a good story onto the concrete sidewalk below. Oof. I peered out and saw him get up and hobble away, dragging his leg. And I yelled a fine string of vicinities after him. And he never came back, and no, much more, no other thug ever tried to get into that apartment. So I guess the word spread. But after that, I decided that um, the sword is all very well, but I better get a gun. So I went and bought, as I say, my first rifle, you know, my first gun, which is the 22 single-shot rifle classic. After that, I added to it, but that was the first. Nice. So you've lived in various groups and communes over the years. Are there any stories from those sorts of times that you'd like to share? Ah, after Michigan, I was saying moved to Chicago, where I stayed with some other old college friends, and we tried to make a go of it. In Chicago, that was easier than Michigan because Michigan was having a depression at the time, a recession. And but in Chicago, you could always find work. It didn't matter what kind, there was always some kind of work, which I took. And well, we stayed in a group after I joined the. You know, during the Wobblies, there was an apartment building in which almost every apartment was uh, rented by one of the Wobblies, so the local, the local chapter. So we called it Wobbly Towers for short. <laughs> and as I recall, there was one instance where uh, some thug tried to, a burglar tried to get into one of the apartments and was promptly met by a Wobbly. It was not only a gun, but um, a cast iron fry pan. And, well, at that range, he couldn't miss. <laughs> the, the burglar left uh, much faster than he had come in with a broken hand, as I recall. And the, that I used uh, that incident to persuade my other wobbly buddies to go and get guns themselves. This was difficult, because in Chicago, well, I was there when uh, dear old Mayor Jane Byrne decided to put it, make a citywide ban on the ownership of, uh, of handguns. Uh, so I didn't have, at the time, I didn't have that much um, um, of an opinion on either, either way, except the guns were handy things to have. So in my capacity as under-editor for the newspaper, I went to the hearings. And what I heard there convinced me. I went out and bought a couple of pistols, heavy ones, one of which I've still got to this day, the uh, Smith & Wesson 57 Magnum. Pretty thing. Solid. And a holster for it, and eventually popped my extension grips for it, and I got it registered while there was still time before the mayor's uh, law went into effect. But still, I kept—I did not have a permit to carry a concealed. The mayor would not allow allow any such thing, so I kept it concealed without permit, which meant a lot of hiding. But uh, I carried it whenever see the wobblies uh, got got checks in, got, got in money, and we had, to, we had to walk to the bank. We had an air gap. So the um, treasurer, whoever it was, the treasurer's, treasurer's assistant, whoever it was that day, would dress in plain, poor-looking poor clothes, 
the, uh, the kind of clothing that says, I'm working class, i got no money, don't bother, right? don't bother robbing me. And he or she would wear that and carry the uh, the checks and the and deposit slip in an envelope in a vest pocket or taped to his or her side. And I would walk along beside them carrying a, uh, wearing a, uh, oh, an open front um, sloppy looking um, sweater which neatly concealed my shoulder holster. And I wore shoulder bags so that I could uh, reasonably clutch the uh, strap of the shoulder bag and it would look normal, and, the, and uh, nobody would know that just an inch under that um, strap and under the flap of my uh, sweater was the handle of my gun. And in this fashion, we would uh, get, take the bus, go down to the bank, walk up to the bank, um, uh, the bank deposit window, and put the money in there. Not have to deal with the human being at all, and this can be a, reg- a uh, regular operation. On uh, once it was my pal Mary Froman who uh, had the job of taking the money to the bank, and she didn't have a she didn't have a gun with her. She was taking she took the the L, and as she was getting off the um, the L train, uh, a young thug grabbed her purse, and she wasn't about to let go of it. So he tried to run away, and, Jenny, and she ran after him. He was dragging her. And he was running as fast as he well could because he wasn't expecting this kind of resistance. And she cleverly thrust into his size, but his own speed ran him ahead first into one of the big uh, big steel pilings that holds up the top of the su- roof of the, su- of the subway. And he clanged his skull good and hard into it and knocked himself out. She kicked his hand off of her purse and walked away and, and proceeded onto the bank. So, yeah, we had some interesting experiences that further convinced me that uh, the right to keep and bear arms is vital, especially for the poor and the working poor and the working class and uh, the lower middle class and all those of us who do not have a thick pad of money to shield us from the effects of our, our decisions or enough of a pad of money to, to entice the local police and the local law. Below a certain uh, below a certain class, you get to do for yourself because the government will not bother to do for you if you were expected to. For sure, I don't know about Chicago, but in New York, there's currently a lawsuit going on. The police refused to issue concealed carry permits to anyone except to celebrities who could give autographed trinkets to the uh, police officers who'd issue the permits. <laughs> oh yeah, I used to be like that in California too. I suppose it still is. Well, they, they stopped issuing them to anyone in L.A., but uh, they've only issued like 20 in L.A. per year, but yeah. Uh, one thing I saw when I lived in California is that once you get out of the counties, which include L.A. and San Francisco, when you get out of the farming counties, since it's the county sheriff who has to issue the permits, if you uh, can show you have a business in a county outside of the big, outside of the big urban ones, there's no problem getting a gun permit, which is good in the entire state. It's only in the big populous centers that you have problems. Mm-hmm. And I sincerely hope that uh, lawsuit succeeds. Uh, as I recall, other cities have done similar uh, similar things and um, gotten slapped by the state or even the federal Supreme Court for it, and saying that you cannot re- uh, uh, pass a law requiring people to carry a piece of paper and then refuse to issue the piece of paper. There is precedent on that. I wish him luck. Absolutely. Go ahead, ask, ask the question, <laughs> what's the difference between, 
What's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? What's that? About $20,000 a year. <laughs> I've noticed that, uh, again, class is a big un unmentioned factor in American politics and society. <laughs> Anarchists are, tend to be working class or around there, and as I said, have no uh, no shield of, or pad of money to protect them from the, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or from the results of their own decisions. And libertarians, I noticed, tend to be middle to upper class. That is, they came to libertarianism from pure logic, pure reason, pure ideology, not practical experience. Nonetheless, we get along pretty well. These days, especially after the 2007 and 2008 recession, a lot of people my age and younger have been skewing a lot more to the left, you know. A lot of people who were born and raised middle class were suddenly slapped with the reality of class conflict when they found themselves being kicked out of their homes, losing jobs, not being able to get a job except at some part-time thing with no benefits. And so a lot of people these days are turning towards anarchism, democratic socialism, and movements like that. And I think people are starting to realize they need guns as well. Yeah. The fun part is that be careful what you call left. Uh, the idea of labor unions used to be left, liberal. Uh, but uh, nowadays, I've noticed over the last 20 years and more that uh, the old definitions of conservative and um, liberal have changed places almost entirely. It's a fascinating thing to watch. It's the uh, Although the Democrat Party uh, seems to rely on a few big unions, the, uh, all the other unions in the country have been withering under their administration. Now I think it's something like less than 10% of everybody in America who works for somebody else for a living has any kind of a union, good, bad, or indifferent. This does not speak well of uh, the liberals' alliance with labor. Yeah, definitely not uh, fans of them right now. <laughs> awesome. So would you like to tell people where they can buy your music and where your website's yeah. at? Yeah, you can email directly to my music publisher, Mary Creasy, C-R-E-A-S-E-Y, at Creasy, at A-T-T dot net. Nice. And your uh, website address? Well, my show-off website is lesliefish.com, which is mostly articles and ads. When it comes to buying my stuff, I actually do better to go to Amazon. I've got my books, my uh, my albums up on Amazon, and um, okay, you can also get them at um, my songs at Prometheus Music. www dot Prometheus p r o m e t h e u s dash music dot com, and you can also get them at yeah www dot random dash factors. Com. And that's where, that's where you can find the uh, webpage for the uh, publishing company. Say, if nothing else, go to Amazon. All right, Leslie. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Definitely glad to hear from an old-time Wobbly and from someone with your uh, amount of experience in the anarchist spaces as well as folk music and filk. So thank you again for coming on. Solidarity. Solidarity forever, <laughs> in sobriety forever, in sobriety forever, 
in sobriety forever, for the beer stein makes us strong. <laughs> Before we move on, I just wanted to take a moment to plug my new Patreon account at www.patreon.com slash That's F-A-Y-E-E-C-K-L-A-R. Contributing to my Patreon will help me out a lot with transition-related medical costs, buying ammo for range days, and the inevitable rent increases of my gentrifying neighborhood. If you enjoy the SRA podcast, or if you want to help support my organizing work, I'd greatly appreciate the help. Love and solidarity, comrades. <laughs> <laughs> 